Our Old Testament reading today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and there are 15 verses, 15 verses and I'll read through them. This is the word of God. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge your brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction or an extortion. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, 
Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Father, thank you now for our hearts being attentive this morning to the word of God. By your spirit, illuminate our hearts and our minds and help us to be edified, transformed by your word. May your spirit work in us and accomplish in us and cause the seed in us to grow and yield fruit for the glory of your name and for the kingdom of God. Amen. Well, we've all heard that saying, haven't we? Tis better to give than to receive. During this time of year, as we go around shopping for gifts, we're confronted by the marketing force of retailers who not only want you to give to others, but to give to yourself as well. A recent statistic showed that 51% of people buy gifts for themselves this time of year. Here are some other interesting statistics. 32.8 million Christmas trees were sold during the holiday this uh, last season. More than 60% of U.S. consumers prefer to buy their holiday gifts online. The usage of smartphones for Christmas gift purchases increased by 11% in the last two years. Americans spend on average, $123 on their spouses. And 22% of Americans believe their Christmas spending will leave them in debt. More than 60% of Americans buy their gifts a week before Christmas. 66% of holiday shoppers will pay more for sustainable products with younger generations leading the way. And high-income households are more likely to shop online for Christmas gifts. Those are just some statistics. Here's a couple other fun facts. 46% of people have lied about liking a gift. I know that's no one here. 47.4% of women want to get jewelry for Christmas. 32.3% of men want gift vouchers for Christmas, and holiday retail sales in 2018 surpassed $1 trillion. In 2019, the amount increased by around 4.5%. Why do we give gifts? Good question. Well, Sarah Miller-Lana writes that gift-giving has its roots in winter pagan rituals. When Christianity folded these rituals into Christmas, the justification for bearing gifts was redirected to the wise men, the Magi, who gave gifts to the infant Jesus. But in early modern Europe, it also had its roots in Christmas begging. At that time, Christmas bore little resemblance to the family-centered holiday celebrated today. During the holiday season, bands of young men, often rowdy, would wassail from home to home and demand handouts from the gentry. Wassail is sort of drunken revelry. And Christmas involved in those days an exchange between the social classes. In other words, the poor would go banging on the doors of the rich, saying, 
you know, give me something. But when Christmas was domesticated in the 1800s in the United States, the recipients of gift giving shifted from the lower classes to children, given by versions of Santa Claus. It was then that a marketing opportunity was created, bringing us to the Santa and the shopping mall phenomenon that we recognize today. That's just some interesting background to gift giving and the season of Christmas. Recently, organizations have caught on to using this time of year to make uh, capital campaigns or fundraising campaigns. I was on Wikipedia the other day, as I often am, because I'm a really curious guy, and I've been using Wikipedia for about 20 years now, and they have employed this thing where you get on the, their website and it says, would you give a small donation? And because I've been using Wikipedia for so long, I mean, it's where I get my sermons. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> I mean, you know, if I'm looking up like William the Conqueror, I'm just a curious guy. You know, I think a couple years ago I gave $3, and you know, last year, you know, I gave $5, and 20, this year I gave $20, and I just felt bad. I was just using Wikipedia, you know, it's a free service, it's a nonprofit. And I figured, well, I do love using Wikipedia, so I, I gave a little money to Wikipedia. But we probably think of fundraising campaigns as a modern innovation. We may be surprised to learn that Paul, the apostle, did frequently raise money for churches and for the gospel ministry by churches. He would raise money from one church to help another church, or he would raise money in a church to help people. And his theology, Paul's theology of fundraising, you could say, is grounded in the biblical and historical reality that God himself demonstrated the most profound act of gift-giving in the offering of his own son to the world. And Paul says, essentially, at the end of this passage we just read, that all of our gift-giving and generosity flows out of that. So generosity flows from God's own example of giving his son. God is a gift-giving God, we could say. James says that every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights who doesn't change, James 1.17. This idea of God's grace as a gift, and I've said it before, but it bears repeating, that the Greek word in the New Testament, charis, for grace, is the same word as gift. So salvation is an act of God's grace, which means it's a gift from God. And the fact that God keeps us is his ongoing gift of grace, keeping us and sanctifying us through the indwelling of his spirit. In our passage this morning, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the churches in Macedonia. He had bragged to the Macedonians about the financial support that the Corinthians had pledged a year earlier. The Corinthians' pledge had motivated other churches, and those other churches were so zealous, they didn't want to be outdone by the Corinthian church, that they had you know, scurried to take up the collection. So think of Paul as this organizer and missionary planting churches, 
and being in connection with all these churches in Asia Minor, which is the Mediterranean world in modern-day Turkey. And he's planted these churches, and some of those churches have sprung up organically. And Paul is going around recognizing that some churches are wealthier than others, and the poorer churches need help. And the Corinthians, which were a wealthy church, had vowed we will give X amount of dollars, and some of these other churches, including poorer churches, had said, you know, we better get on it. And they had taken up a collection and had it prepared early so that when Paul visited, it was ready for him and his um, people with Paul, his other gospel worker, um, ministry workers. And he writes this, and he says, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness to give. So I've added, essentially, in a little bracket, brackets there I've bracketed what he's talking about for I know your readiness to give talking to the Corinthians of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready with their offering since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them but I'm sending the brothers on ahead so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter you detect the dilemma there's something not all is right so that you may be ready as I said you would be word had gotten back to Paul that the financial gift that the Corinthians had pledged was in the doldrums it wasn't ready and earlier in chapter 8 Paul bragged about the Macedonians generosity and he says this, we want you to know, talking to the Corinthians, about the grace of God given among the churches in Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. The Macedonians were poor, the Corinthians, on the other hand, were rich. The Macedonians were a suffering church. But Paul says, essentially, that their rock-bottom poverty resulted in a wealth of generosity. They were like the parable of the widow's might. You may remember that story. The widow who gave everything she had in that parable, people were coming into the temple, Pharisees and other people who were wealthy, and they were giving lots of money out of their abundance, but this poor little widow had just a coin, and it was all that she had, and she gave it, and Jesus brags about this woman because of the radical self-abandon of this woman who gave her last amount of money. You know, quantitatively, it was far less than those who were giving large sums, but qualitatively it was much more because they gave out of an abundance that they had. And she gave all that she had, even though it was a very small amount. It was everything she had. You know, not everyone is poor because they're bad with money. Some people are poor because they give away everything they have. Maybe they just don't have a mind or the know-how, or they care about building wealth. It is hard for them 
like the Macedonians who knew firsthand the pain of poverty and felt a deep fraternal affinity with others in the same situation. Does that make sense? So the Macedonians were poor and suffering, and as they saw the poverty and suffering of the people they lived among, it was too hard for them to hang on to their money. They gave it away, right? They just gave it away, and Paul sees them and says, wow, they're poor, but they, they, they gave not only out of their means, but beyond their means. They gave till it hurt, Paul says the Macedonians did. They couldn't just sit idly by and see the need of their neighbors. But the more wealthier Corinthians were slack in taking up a collection. So Paul says, number one, be prepared and avoid humiliation. He says, if the Macedonians with me find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated. In other words, it'd be really embarrassing to show up with the Macedonians who are so excited to hear that you Corinthians had put aside a collection for them, it'd be embarrassing for us to show up and you not have it ready. And he says, and so would you be humiliated. In other words, it would be embarrassing to you too. Having made the pledge and not having fulfilled the pledge to give. And then he says, so arrange in advance the gift you promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction, or the word means an extortion. In other words, Paul says, do what you got to do before I get there so I don't have to show up and, you know, force you to give something. I don't want, I don't want it to be that way. So apparently, even 2,000 years ago, you know, money was a sensitive topic back then too. Right? It's not just, it hasn't just become a sense. It has always been a sensitive topic, right? And so Paul says, you figure that out before I get there. I don't want to have to show up and haggle and hassle with you over the money you pledged to give the Macedonians. So figure it out. I'm sending people ahead so that it can be ready by the time I come there with the Macedonian delegation. We might ask, why was Paul taking up a collection in the first place? What was behind his sort of fundraising, if you will. Why did he need pledges from the churches in Asia Minor? Well, there are two reasons, really, based two basic reasons. The first is for a benevolence to help the poorer saints in financial need. So the church in Macedonia wanted to be able to have something to give to the poorer saints. He was also taking up a collection for the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem. So benevolence is one. Those who had an abundance would give to help those who were struggling financially. The second reason is simply to fund the vision and work for ministry. This morning, I'm talking about provision for the vision. Last Sunday... I talked about, um, I preached a vision sermon for our church, just sort of what kind of church we understand, understand ourselves to be. And if you were here or you watched online, you hopefully got the gist that we believe God has called us to the gospel ministry where he's placed us and we want to do things in the coming year. But to fund that vision, there needs to be provision. 
And what's instructive for us in all of this, what's key, is the manner in which Paul wanted the Corinthians to give. It wasn't just enough that they gave. In other words, God deeply cares about the way we give. Deeply cares about it. It's almost as important, if not more important, than the giving itself. It's the condition of the heart. And so Paul says, so arrange in advance the gift you promise so that it may be ready as a willing gift. I want you to want to give it. I don't want you to give it because you, it's something you feel like you have to do. I want, more importantly, God wants you to want to give it. Has anyone ever you know, given something to you, maybe a gift or something, but you felt like they gave it out of obligation, not out of joy, not because they wanted to, you know? And it doesn't feel good, right? You want someone, if they did give you something, to give it out of a sense of joyfulness, willingness, cheer. Well, God wants that. God wants our hearts to be that way, but there's a reason behind it. God cares, deeply cares about our heart. And the interesting thing about all that we do for God, whatever facet of scripture we are obeying, is it should come willingly from the heart. I heard of a charismatic church that before they will admit membership, people to membership, they ask for their tax return. Apparently, they want to verify that each person is giving a tenth of their income. Now that to me is the opposite of what Paul is trying to get at here. That is the last thing he's trying to do, which is hold some level of guilt over someone to get them to give. It's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Not that it's not good to give a tenth, it is the tithe, we should do that, but the idea of extorting it from people sort of holding something above their head to keep them, make them feel guilty and force them to give. A couple more things we need to know. The vision needs provision, but God deeply cares about the manner in which we give. And the truth is, the money we give isn't about money at all. That's, that's, that's the mystery of of our giving, the mystery of money, okay? The mystery of the money we give and the Bible's own posture about giving as an expression of faithful obedience to God, no less than not being a liar or an adulterer or a murderer. But the reason behind it isn't money. The truth is, it's about what our heart trusts in. This is what God is really after. God, God has, the church needs money. God doesn't need the money, right? God doesn't need your money. The church needs the money. God doesn't need your money. What God cares about is what your heart is trusting in. It's fascinating that banks have names like First Bank and Trust, isn't it? Right? We call investments security. I mean, that ought to reveal something to us about how money affects our heart and the way, the things we trust in. 
When we give a significant portion of our income away to God, we're saying, in essence, my trust, my security is not in my money. And on one hand, it's completely counterintuitive because, you know, from a mathematical point of view, your trust should be in your money, right? If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, you, you need money to pay bills. It just, it doesn't, if, you, if you're giving money that you could use, you know, to buy groceries or to invest or something away, it just doesn't seem wise on the surface. So how does money, giving money away, actually make you more financially secure? How? Because it doesn't seem like it. Paul says that giving your, a portion of your money away regularly, consistently, sacrificially, actually makes you more secure, and it's a principle that you have to grab a hold of by faith. So this is how it works, all right? By faith, God has made promises to us, and Paul uses an illustration from the world of agriculture. He says this, remember this, whoever sows sparingly, it's an agricultural illustration for those of you who don't farm. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's this principle, whoever sows sparingly reaps sparingly. And for those of you who still don't know what that means, the idea of sowing is sowing seed into the ground, putting seed into the ground, and reaping, right? The, the reapers, you know, when the, when the crops grow up, you know, the reapers come in and they yield a harvest. Um, and prosperity preachers have abused this because while this is a solid, truthful, biblical principle, for them, it's merely transactional, do this and God will do that. If you want to get a lot of money, give a lot of money and God will guaranteed give it, give it to you back. And for them, it's just transactional. But in reality, it's a matter of faith in God's provision. That's what it should be. It shouldn't be a transaction. You know, I give 10, I'm going to get 100 back from God. Like, that's just foolishness. But it is a principle that God lays out in Scripture that by faith surrendering the thing that would otherwise make you feel more secure, which is counterintuitive to the wisdom of this world, will, in God's care and provision for you, literally make you more secure. Because it recruits the blessing and provision of God in a supernatural way appropriated by faith, which means you have to believe in it. This is why Paul keeps emphasizing, I want you to do it from a willing heart, a heart that is grounded in joy and faith. Not an arm-twisting kind of adherence. This was also the principle behind the Sabbath. The idea of resting from working and earning and commerce for a day of the week, declaring, God will take care of me. I don't need to work seven days a week and earn seven days a week. Right, so I would even encourage you, as a modern application, if some of you have some kind of online business where you have a stream of revenue and income, don't go home after church on the Lord's Day and fool with that if you want to honor the, the fourth commandment. That's just, that's just my 
you know, Jordan the, the theologian scholar, okay? That's my take on it. That's how you honor the principle of the Sabbath is on the Lord's Day, you don't do things that relate to earning money and business and commerce. Because by not engaging in those things, you're declaring, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I trust that you're going to supply the other six days of the week that I work or do whatever I have to do, that that's going to be enough. Most people know that Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays. Who, who knows that? Who doesn't know that? Okay, yeah, you've learned the hard way. You went up to the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and went, oh, that's right, they're closed on Sunday. But from a worldly, you know, logic and point of view, it's bad for business, because, you know, none of the other fast food joints are closed on Sunday. But what you may not know is Chick-fil-A has the highest revenue of any fast food chain in America, beating out McDonald's and KFC. What you also may not know is Dan Cathy, the CEO and the son of the founder of Chick-fil-A, is a Christian, a devout Christian, and refuses to do business on Sunday. And the money he loses, because I would imagine there was a time, maybe, maybe from the very, I don't know the history of Chick-fil-A, but it's possible they always did that. And if they always did that, they made up in their mind, whatever money we lose by not being open Sunday, God will give it back to us in different ways. And indeed, he has. And I use that illustration to help us grab a hold of the blessing and opportunity we have to glorify God in our giving, sacrificially, regularly. The opportunity we have to experience an aspect of God's, a relationship with God that many other people don't know. And statistics are telling us that with younger generations, in the postmodern age we live in where people have less confidence in institutions, younger people don't give as much. They don't feel the conviction. They don't, they don't sort of believe in the church as an institution anymore. They're super discerning, uh, you know, and I mean, to, to a fault. But when you do not commit regularly a portion of your income sacrificially to kingdom purposes, you are missing out on a vital aspect of, of relationship with God the sort of joy of experiencing letting go of something that may feel fearful, but over time seeing God's hand of provision week after week, month after month, year after year. And I've heard testimonies of people who do give sacrificially, regularly, and will say, I would, I would never have it any other way. I have seen God supply and move in miraculous ways. And so when you sacrifice a portion of your income, which may seem at first painful to give, but you give it joyfully, over time you'll see God multiply the remainder. And this is what Paul goes on to say. When you do this, when you give joyfully, cheerfully, with a willing heart, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. See that? 
God has given you what you have. When you give it away, significant portion of it, God says, I will enable you to be generous. I will enable more generosity. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Thanks be to God, to him, for his inexpressible gift. Now we're running out of time and I would love to do more justice to the text and there's a lot more to unpack, but suffice it to say, what all of this has to do with Highlands Church is we want to implement the, God, the vision God has given us. And we want to increase in the coming year. Next week, um, we'll have a financial report. We'll talk about our plans for the coming year. Uh, one of the things we want to do is increase our benevolence fund. We do have a benevolence. We have used it in the past. You may not know about it because we don't broadcast it. We keep it confidential. But we have a benevolence fund. We want to increase that. We're also looking to double next year our support for local and foreign missions. So we do, you may not realize this, we support some foreign and local mission works. We're looking to, um, to double that in the coming year, in 2021. And we're also looking to, um, to uh, implement some ministry initiatives that will require hiring some part-time staff in the coming year. We'll talk more about it next week, and um, we'll have a financial report more in detail, but that's just some of the things we're hoping to do in 2021. But to suffice us to say, you know, the vision needs provision, and next week we'll send out online pledge forms. You know, every year we, we send like a little three-by-five card. We're going to shift um, and put that online um, or send it out in our church newsletter, and I just want to say, this is a generous church, and the fact that we've just become a local church is a testament to the faithfulness of your giving, because part of what is included in becoming an official local church is being financially stable, right? So we're able financially to stand on our own two feet, and it is a testimony that I have. It's the joy I have as your pastor to be able to rejoice and tell other pastor friends of mine that during the COVID crisis, our giving has remained steady and constant. And I am so overjoyed and ecstatic that that has been true. And it's not because we reached out to the government for the payroll protection plan. We never did that. We didn't have to do that. And that is a testament of your faithfulness and your generosity. As I said before, this is a generous church. And uh, there are a few of us here today, but for those of you also watching online, uh, our gratitude for your generosity. So we're grateful. We're thankful for your generosity, your continued support, and we want to encourage more of that because we see the fruits of that provision. We see the fruit of your generosity in what God is doing here at Highlands Church. Um, and, you know, this is your church. This isn't just my church. You're, you know, you're not funding Jordan's church or the elder's church. This is your church. And I hope you're excited and, and experience satisfaction seeing that we're moving forward in ministry. 
because of your past financial support and pledges for the ministry and what God is doing here. You know, if someone asks you, what is God doing at Highlands Church? You can tell them all of those things I just shared with you, but chief of all, all of those things is you can say, the word of God is preached. You know, the word of God is being proclaimed in a day and age when there are a lot of churches that are doing everything but that. They have shrieked back from that responsibility to proclaim the word of God in a world like ours. And it's not just through this, the preaching on Sunday morning, it's through the embodiment of the gospel being preached in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, as we collectively, as the people of God, are a prophetic voice in the age we live in. Let us give cheerfully because God himself has given us all things, especially his son Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the inexpressible gift that you gave freely. That in eternity past, unprompted and unprovoked by us, certainly, you gave what we needed. You gave your son Jesus for the sins of humanity, that those whom you have called and chosen before the foundation of the world might in Christ be redeemed and ransomed from sin and death. Help all of our giving to flow out of that reality. Help our commitment, especially in this time of year, this Advent and Christmas season, as we are giving to other people, and rightly so. Help us not to neglect the ministry of the saints and the work of the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray.